All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Blind Spot. Uh, Isabella is in Spain. I am here in the U.S., uh, untraveled and unsophisticated as always. Uh, I don't go anywhere. I stay right here. And today we have with us uh, the wonderful, uh, I'm going to say Mr. Ferguson, because I have a first question for you. Uh, I've read many of your books and watched many of your uh, interv interviews over the years. And I've noticed that nobody knows uh, whether your name is Neil or Niall, and you never correct them. So uh, I thought I'd ask you that as a first question. <laughs> is it Neil or Niall Ferguson? It's <laughs> a first question. Well, it's it's Neil. It's Neil. I mean, the, the Gallic name Neil can be spelt in any number of ways uh, because spelling wasn't really uh, one of the strong suits of the Scots uh, back when they were doing a lot of migration. <laughs> The Irish mispronounced the Irish mispronounced the name Nile because they they largely forgot Gaelic and then relearned it in an attempt to be good nationalists and they relearned it with lots of pronunciation errors of which Nile is one and so if you say Nile you're confusing me with the well-known Egyptian river uh, it's oh, okay. it's Neil and if you go up to the northwest <laughs> the, the of Scotland where they really say these things right they say Nial which sounds great. It's a, it's really a two-syllable name. And if you want the punchline, uh, since you've started me off on this, uh, I once sought the advice of the professor of Celtic languages at Oxford, who was a Welshman oh, you weren't, and therefore neutral you weren't sure yourself. in the dispute. And he ruled. <laughs> no, he ruled. No, I wanted, a, I wanted a ruling from an expert. I mean, I'm just, I'm just a Scotsman called Neil. And he ruled in favor of, of my, my pronunciation, Neil. And I explained this to an Irishman in a pub once who listened to me carefully, sipped on his Guinness, and then said, ah, but what about Brian? Uh, because the diphthong I-A in Ian is pronounced Ian, and in Brian is pronounced Brian. So perhaps everybody who's calling themselves Brian is in fact called Brian. I'll leave that to listeners. <laughs> uh, well, I've lost a lot of bets. I liked I liked Nile better, so I've been saying that for years. And then, uh, and then I all my friends told me it was Neil. And they told me I was wrong, and I bet them ten bucks it wasn't. But uh, okay, I'll so only uh, we have a lot of they call me Nigel, Nigel, <laughs> Nigel Ferguson. <laughs> so we have, and when people uh, call the, me Nigel, I will correct them. <laughs> yeah, the famed uh, the famed historian and. Uh, uh, sometimes biographer Neil Ferguson with us today, uh, and once uh, I learned recently, uh, thought himself a comedian. So, well, everybody in my day went to Oxford or Cambridge, hoping to be the next Monty Python, and I was no exception. My my plan on going to Oxford was to follow in the footsteps of the Python team or of the Beyond the Fringe team. The trouble is being funny is really very difficult and hardly yeah. anybody with that aspiration makes it. The, the exception in my experience is my former student, Sasha Baron Cohen, who did go from the Cambridge Footlights to global fame. But I realized I was actually not that funny after about two years of trying <laughs> to cut it in Oxford amateur theatricals and then i had the great insight that if i stuck to history and became an academic then when i was funny 
everybody would be so relieved that I was not boring that they would they would laugh quite a lot. So it's all about expectations. If you're expecting a comedian, your bar is very high. If you're expecting a story, you'll laugh at practically anything <laughs> you're already doing. That's actually you uh, so you, you might you might even be a, a comedian today, but just one among historians. So that's uh, that's clever. Um, well, let me let me give a little bit of introduction to Neil, uh, and he can further introduce himself. I think uh, Neil's written many many uh, incredible books. Uh, the Ascent of Money is one of the first I ever read of his, and uh, in my opinion he has written the most uh, important of the Kissinger biographies, uh, which I think, I think you say in the book yourself that you really weren't a biographer, but that he himself insisted that you write his, uh, his biography. And uh, maybe one of the neatest and most wonderful books on those individuals, such as the Rothschilds, uh, the, the incredible uh, conspiracy targets, which we uh, we love, you know, Isabella believes run the world, um, and the and and many others. So there's uh, he's a, he's been he's right he's been writing for a very very long time. Has many many books out. Uh, I'm sure most of you know who he is. Uh, Neil, a, a portion of our our audience is actually crypto people. So uh, Neil has uh, has crypto's made an appearance in a number of his books as well. So I think we're probably going to be running the gamut today. Uh, Neil, you'd, you'd call yourself a historian, right? Absolutely. That's all I do. So, I, I there. quit the comedy stuff ages ago. <laughs> so he's a, he's a historian uh, with an incredibly incredible, incredible depth of knowledge, and uh, and I am honored to have him on today. So we will uh, we'll hit on tons of uh, tons of topics, tons of subjects, and I think that you guys are in for a treat, or maybe the. <laughs> No, I was just going to say thank you, thank you for having us, uh, for cu coming on the show and, and for timing um, our interview so well, because you, I think we organized this weeks ago and it was almost, um, I don't know how you managed to predict this would be the exact moment Nancy Pelosi <laughs> lands in Taiwan. So excellent timing on that front. Well, I did write about it uh, last week. Uh, pretty confident that she would land in Taiwan, but I must confess that I wasn't I wasn't scheduling her arrival to coincide with our recording. Uh that that it it goes beyond the limits of my powers. What was what was with the saber rattling, do you think? Well I think we've got some more saber rattling to look forward to. Uh it's highly unlikely in my view that the Chinese will just sit back and watch Nancy Pelosi meeting the president of Taiwan. They have a playbook for this, which is quite well established. And so I should imagine that there will be a, quite a lot of flyovers by uh, PLA jets, maybe a missile test uh, here and there. Uh, there'll be a fair amount of military activity on the mainland coast. And all of this will be designed uh, to signal highest disapproval are uh, on the part of the Chinese Communist Party for Nancy Pelosi's visit. I don't think there's about to be a war. So if you're selling your stocks in anticipation of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, relax. I don't think that's very likely. Uh, but I, I think, it's, to me, the strange thing is that the Biden administration has been 
ramping up its rhetoric and its actions on Taiwan for, for some months now. What's strange about that is that from a Chinese vantage point, at some point in the relatively near future, and people debate about how near, uh, they may well make a move. And this seems to me to, to encourage them to do that. What's strange is that we're not really in a position to do much about it if the Chinese launch a successful invasion of Taiwan. It's not 1996 when we could send two aircraft carrier groups and the Chinese would have to back off. They now have a capacity to sink American aircraft carriers with land-based missiles. And it's a pretty much open secret at the Pentagon that all the war games in recent years have, have ended in a Chinese victory whenever they've tried to play out a Taiwan invasion scenario. So it's a strange thing to want uh, to bring to a boil especially when you've got a war going on in Ukraine that is absorbing a considerable amount of American resources. So I'm, I'm struggling a bit to understand the, the logic behind this. The idea that Nancy Pelosi just made up her mind to do this uh, without consulting anybody, I think we can probably dismiss. Do you remember the last time she traveled? Like, I don't, I don't recall another time where I've seen Nancy Pelosi going on like a European, like a rain, like the the Ava Peron rainbow tour. You know, <laughs> she's like all over Asia right now. Christian Dior, but it's probably not. I mean, I'm sure she does a fair amount of of this. Uh, after all, uh, she's got her husband's portfolio to research uh, and advise on. It's just that normally a, a trip by the Speaker of the House of Representatives isn't news, but when it's Taiwan, that is news. And just as it was news when Newt Gingrich did it back in 1997, uh, going to Taiwan as an American official uh, of any kind is regarded by the Chinese as a, a provocation, especially if you go and meet, as Nancy Pelosi is doing, the, the Taiwanese president, because it, it disrupts the strange fiction uh, that uh, Taiwan is, in fact, a province of uh, China, the one China fiction. Uh, and it also, I think, calls into question the ambiguity of the American position, which is that we kind of accept that, but at the same time, under uh, a 1979 Act of Congress, we reserve the right to take action if the Chinese try to change the status of Taiwan by force. So Taiwan is part of China, officially and formally, but de facto, it's an independent democracy and a very thriving and successful one. Uh, if you go around meeting with the president of Taiwan, as if Taiwan's an independent country and ignoring uh, Chinese disapproval, I think you implicitly call into question the one China policy and that's what the Chinese don't like. So I think we should, uh, I mean, there's a couple, a couple things to hit on, um, but I'd, I'd like to, to talk a little bit about the foreign policy of the Biden administration and juxtapose that in some ways with like the foreign policy of the Trump administration. <coughs> I apologize. Um, What's interesting to me, like you wrote your book, uh, Doomed, the most recent one, you're talking a little bit about the fact that we are in what you believe to be a Cold War with China, right? 
That's and right. uh, the, just the, that it, this is something that was confirmed to you, in fact, at a conference by a Chinese, <laughs> a, a Chinese diplomat of some sort who you, I mean, I, maybe, maybe the story from your mouth is better. I, I read it, um, but, uh, but may, you can tell it better than I can retell it. Well, it, well, I have uh, um, been arguing that we're in Cold War II for quite a while, I think four years now. At the end of the book, Doom, features a bunch of scenarios around the US-China uh, conflict, including the possibility of a war over Taiwan. So this is uh, looking good today. When I first made this argument, uh, in, in a lecture at a conference in Italy, I was, uh, I was scheduled to, to be followed by a Chinese official, um, one whom I knew quite well. I won't say who it was because what followed was a private conversation. And after I had made my, as I thought it, inflammatory uh, and provocative talk about Cold War II and the US-China uh, confrontation, he then stood up and, and spoke and made almost no reference to what I'd, I'd said. And I had actually expected him to contradict me and say that this was not at all the case and that China still was committed to a win-win relationship with the United States. And she, he did, didn't do that. And I, I said to him afterwards, I was surprised that you didn't take issue with what I'd, I'd said about Cold War II. And he smiled and said, no, well, that's because... I agree with you. And then it dawned on me that it's actually been clear to the Chinese for quite a while that we're in a Cold War. It's just the well, US that's a bit slow to notice. You, you write in Dune that uh, he, he actually smirked and, and said it to you. And uh, to, to me, I, I took this, and I think you, you explicitly stated that you sort of believe they started it. <laughs> like they, they know what they're doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. I think Xi Jinping has embarked on a course that implied Cold War, even if it didn't explicitly intend it. And, and that was something I remember noticing 10 years ago when I made a documentary series for Channel 4 called China uh, Triumph and Turmoil. Uh, PBS declined to air it uh, for reasons that I don't recall. But I looked at it the other day, and it, it stands up quite well. The point that the series made was that the, the regime of Xi Jinping, which had just really come into existence, is a strange amalgam of the imperial, uh, because vestiges of that certainly persist in the way the CCP runs itself, the Maoist, because there is a nostalgia for, for Mao in China that you encounter in, in many locations. And, and she plays to that and, and has revived Marxism, Leninism, and Maoism in the ideology of the CCP. And, and finally, of a desire to emulate Western imperial power structures. And I would say One Belt, One Road, or the Belt and Road Initiative is, is a part of, of, of a global expansion of Chinese power. And these things together 10 years ago were obviously putting China on, on course for some kind of, of friction with the United States. Even earlier than that, I wrote a piece with Moritz Schulerich about Chimerica, that was in 2007, and, and we argued that the Chinese-American economic fusion of that time was a chimera. The whole point of the word chimerica was to have a pun on chimera, which, by the way, really doesn't work in Chinese. 
But, uh, but the expect <laughs> of the US-China relationship, no, really doesn't work so we no it does i'm, I'm thinking I'm, so I'm, I'm thinking i'm thinking right now about my my rudimentary chinese knowledge and i i like first of all most of chinese is is uh written characters that have like literal meaning and you can't really there's like portmanteau doesn't work as well it's not german <laughs> it's, it's yeah. interesting yeah it just it just puns by and large don't export well into other languages uh at any event, we expected the U.S.-China relationship to unravel, uh, and in a way, it took longer than I expected. And it didn't really unravel in American minds or begin unraveling in American minds until Trump's election and the, the trade war that, that he then unleashed. But the trade war didn't become a cold war until around about Mike Pence's speech to the Hudson Institute and in October of 2018. And that was around about the time that I started explaining to people that even if you just looked at a map of the world according to Huawei, it looked like a Cold War map because there were the countries that adopted Huawei and the countries that banned Huawei and the non-aligned countries that couldn't make up their minds because, hey, it looks really cheap, but on the other hand, the Chinese control it. So, so the idea of Cold War had been in my mind for a while, but it had not been at all accepted in Western discussion. And when I first brought it up in uh, the polite salons of California, I was told I was a very naughty boy and shouldn't talk about Cold War because we actually were going to have co-opetition with the Chinese. And I remember saying, co-opetition isn't a word for a reason. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the Chinese, I think, saw this long before, <clears throat> long before people in the West. So this was this this concept of coopetition that was like Eric Schmidt and a bunch of like really in, and I kind of wanted to get into this. I'm glad you brought it up because what's interesting to me, uh, I've noticed this in in both the uh, the Kissinger book and this book as well is that foreign policy seems to be done by relatively small groups of people. It seems like there's like if you're in the in crowd, you see like. Mike Pence at the Hudson Bay Institutes and its obvious consequences, uh, his speech, right? And if you're not, then like something like that, like that'll be written in a history book in 20 years. You'll be like, well, well, everyone must have known about that. But the reality is that it seems to kind of happen behind closed doors and is obvious to everybody who's involved, but not at all to the people that it affects like us, right? And I think, so to, to change gears and uh, talk a little bit about the Donald Trump administration, it seemed to me that Trump, uh, very much felt and acted like an outsider of foreign policy as well and sort of did what uh, just like, I don't know, an American would do or something like that if they like took the reins of the presidency. And it felt like that, I think, for for United, Sta for United States citizens. <coughs> My God, for United States citizens as we watched him try to like navigate those waters that, you know, he's not a foreign policy, he's just like a business guy. He's kind of just doing like businessy things as he did foreign policy. Um to that, uh, do, do we do you want to read the quote uh, Donald Trump of Donald Trump that you have here, Isabella, regarding Ukraine? Not to change the subject to Ukraine necessarily, but I think it's it's relevant. To uh, well, the quote is the quote from. Um, I mean, it's from not Neil's um, latest column, so he starts the whole piece off like mm -hmm. uh, asking us the reader like who said this. And uh, the quote goes, it's like they're afraid of him, Trump said, referring to Putin. You know, he was a friend of mine. I got along great with him. I can't do the the, um, the mannerisms. 
I say, Vladimir, if you do it, I attack Ukraine. We're hitting Moscow. And he sort of believed me like 5%, 10%. That's all you need. He never did it during my time, John. You know, uh, why didn't he do this during the last four years? She didn't bother me either. I told him the same thing. And then Trump added, Taiwan will be next. You won't have any computer chips. They'll blow them off the face of the earth. I horrific um rendition sorry about that but that's the quote that's actually i heard trump say it, and that's exactly what he sounded like when he said it so <laughs> it, it, uncanny isabella oh yeah the um never be goes, uh, um what i was just gonna say is that a i i was very impressed not impressed i think that's the wrong word but that you put that at the front of your column and I mean, it's provocative. It's also, I wonder what the reaction has been to your column pointing that out. What, you know. Taiwan will be next. You won't have any computer chips that blow them off the face of the earth. Um, <laughs> English I wonder how many people recognized the quotation. Uh, not many, I'd guess. But actually that, that extraordinary conversation that, that Trump had uh, with, uh, with a golfer, I don't play golf so I didn't rec recollect his name but the conversation was a really interesting one because in it Trump asserted that he had said to Putin if you invade Ukraine I'll bomb Moscow and he also asserted that he'd said something similar uh, to Xi Jinping presumably on the subject of, of Taiwan and, uh, and of course as an historian I'm trained to disbelieve any claim of that sort uh, and we don't have any corroboration that he said those things. It's not like Putin or Xi have acknowledged it, nor are they likely to. But I asked somebody who was in the Trump administration, you know, is there any plausibility to Trump's having said those things? And he replied, oh, he said shit like that all the time. So I'm rather inclined to believe that, that Trump said something along those lines. Because... Uh, and, and and Neil, you'd be right to believe it was along those lines because just if you don't know who John Daly is, uh, he he should be your next biography. <laughs> he's the most interesting golfer who's ever lived. He's like three hundred fifty pounds. He uh, there's during every single PGA Tour, there's a drinking, uh, there's a there's an alcohol uh, consumption and, and cigarette consumption meter that people do. He got kicked of, out of the tour for uncouth behavior when he was young. Uh, out of the PGA Tour, and so he went to the European Tour, and uh, the first the first competition he played there. This is like when he was in his twenties, was at St Andrews, uh, the old course, and he immediately won. <laughs> he's uncouth. He's a redneck, and uh, he's he's just he doesn't care. <laughs> so well, he was probably German. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm the one Scotsman who who really doesn't like golf, although. The, the drinking and smoking. Oh, Daly's wonderful. Daly's the 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 most wonderful thing that ever happened. But he he would have been drunk when Trump said this, I'm sure, because he always was. He has he's a diabetic like big guy. Like, oh, I think I think I, uh, frozen. All right, he's back. He's back. Good, good. Um, I uh, I think the important points about this uh, conversation uh, with Daly is that. Trump's probably right that the war in Ukraine wouldn't have happened if he'd been re-elected. 
And I think he's right that we wouldn't be on the brink of another Taiwan Strait crisis. And the reason I say that is not that I'm an avid MAGA supporter. I was always deeply ambivalent about, about Trump and would be pretty dismayed if he were to be reelected. But the reason I say it is that if one looks at the content of, of Trump's foreign policy, going back to your original uh, question, and then at the, the kind of outcomes or the, the practice of Trump's foreign policy, it really was much more successful than uh, the average foreign policy <laughs> expert would like to admit. Uh, Trump was not a content-free proposition. Trump had a very clear critique of the mainstream foreign policy uh, strategy of the United States. He uh, wanted to abandon free trade in, in favor of protectionism, which was a radical reversal from a bipartisan consensus on free trade going back to the 1940s. Uh, he wanted to restrict uh, immigration. Uh, and he wanted to go after China on the, I think, the ground that, that China was not playing by the rules of the World Trade Organization anyway. Uh, and this, this critique, I think, had a powerful appeal to American voters who felt, I think, rightly disconnected from the foreign policy establishment that had been so in favor of globalization, of free trade, free migration, free capital flows. And I think that was one very major reason why Trump got elected. Uh, and it's worth following through what then happened. I don't think tariffs were ever likely to reduce the US-China bilateral trade deficit. That never seemed terribly probable. But what I think Trump did was to waken Americans up to the Chinese challenge, not just the economic challenge, but the broader challenge, and to change the minds of the foreign policy establishment. And this was the remarkable thing, that it took Donald Trump to alert Americans to the fact that the Chinese economy was about to overtake them, indeed, by one measure, already had overtaken in terms of gross domestic product by 2014, and that this was not a good thing that the United States should continue to encourage. So this is, I think, the, the historical significance of Trump. Uh, Trump also, because he was the madman theory personified, Richard, Richard Nixon's old theory that you had to kind of be seem crazy enough to deter the foreigners. I mean, Trump was far better at that than Nixon because everybody knew that Nixon was basically a cold calculating political machine. But but Trump was uh, far from cold and calculating. And when Trump Put told you fired. fire and fury, it was yeah. plausible. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and that's it, it does kind of confirm that Nixon had the theory right, just uh, the wrong person in the in the job for uh, executing it, right? Um, I, I do I do right. find it interesting though. Like, why why would you be dismayed if you were reelected rather than ambivalent or curious about what well, might happen next? Amb ambivalence is, I think, appropriate. There, there were many aspects of the Trump administration that were, in fact, uh, highly effective. The administration not only uh, stood up to China, changed the national security strategy on that issue profoundly. I think it, uh, it also avoided uh, getting mixed up in, in wars, uh, which kind of made a change. Uh, and I think uh, more broadly, its economic policies were highly successful and delivered full employment without inflation, which is something we all now feel rather nostalgic about. Uh, so the Trump administration had, had many features that were, in fact, by 
comparison with other recent administrations, admirable. The problem, of course, uh, was uh, Trump himself, his almost uh, complete indifference to constitutional uh, and indeed legal proprieties. And the culmination of this was his doomed attempt to overturn the election results, which I think rules him or should rule him out of, of any future uh, candidacy for the presidency. I, in that sense, my views are quite uh, are quite conventionally those of a member of the global elite. But I actually think it's not healthy for the American Republic to uh, to contemplate re-electing a man who so obviously you wanted know, to do a violence to the Constitution. Who who told you to think that? Who told you to well, think that? Well, I, I can't really blame anybody. I, I may even have arrived at this view on my own. It's it's always possible. After or before Davos? <laughs> well, I didn't go to Davos this year, so it can't it can't have been Davos. <laughs> you were on the Zoom calls. Uh, um, <laughs> I think uh, I, I would. I, I know we only have a limited amount of time, right? So there's all sorts of subjects that we'd love to hit on. Um, I think I think the Trump views are really interesting because you're one of the few academics I think who isn't deranged about him, uh, and you seem fairly reasonable, which is why I asked about the ambivalence because to me. Like, uh, I think it, it sort of uh, ambivalence is, is much more appropriate than, like, anger and belief that the American experiment is about to die if Trump is reelected. And I think, I thought that maybe you might be the only academic who would find that question or actually have an interesting answer for that question. But Just, just you know, well, well, worth pointing out that Josh says that as a Floridian. Um, <laughs> he's uh, uh, he's from Entrenched in the uh, Mar-a-Lago uh, perspective, <laughs> but Josh, Josh, in yeah. Florida, Republicans would rather it was Ron DeSantis who was the nominee in twenty. Those people are stupid because if 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 we give Ron DeSantis to the the nation, then we don't get him ourselves, right? And uh, and the choices down here are sparse. We have a lot of people running around. Well, I think you should make Trump governor of Florida and DeSantis president. That seems like the. I'm all for that. I'm me. all for that. Uh, I'm all That's for that. You know? <laughs> I, I, you know, I just when we split away from America and we become Florerica, uh, I just want to make sure that a good conservative uh, man so, is sitting there at the top. So Florida's going to be the new Taiwan of America, is what you're suggesting? No, 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 no. It's, it's not going to be just us. It's going to be us, Louisiana, and Texas. Okay. And uh, and then what we're going to do is immediately form a coalition, meet up at the border, and take Georgia because we need some of the uh, the shipyards. Right. Well, bringing a European so this, perspective. This is what well, this is the. Go on. This is Sorry. the quadrat demonstrandum moment. You see, this is why yeah. I'm ambivalent because, in many ways, Trump represented a re return to 19th-century American politics, <laughs> and many uh, commentators didn't understand that because they don't actually know any 19th-century history. Hence, all the crazy analogies with Mussolini and Hitler and terrible books like Timothy Snyder's uh, book on tyranny. No, Trump was a return to the incredibly hardball politics of the, of the 19th century. But the problem with hardball politics in the 19th century was that it did produce a civil war. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of one of those conventionally minded people who's against civil wars and doesn't want the United States to break up. And so one of the reasons that I'm ambivalent about Trump is that he had, I think, implicitly uh, a, a, a serious uh, a serious threat to the constitutional stability of the republic. From a historian's point of view, the republic is an inherently unstable political institution. They generally don't last terribly long before 
tyranny supervenes because the, the, the plebs decide that the elites are corrupt. And I just don't want to see that play out in my lifetime. I'm a newly minted American citizen. I became a citizen in 2018. <laughs> it, I don't want to show up in time for the darn civil war like one of those unfortunate oh, you got here, Neil. You got here. Are you, are you, uh, you're in, you're in Boston, right? Is that, is that right? Up in Boston? No, no. I, I normally am in the People's Republic of California. Uh, oh, California. That's I'm the best not, state. That's the right best, now. worst state. Um, you got to get you to a state where you can get some guns. Um, but the, the, I, I, I've been I've been thinking the, about this. Don't for worry, a while. I, I hang out in Montana quite a bit of the. I, there I you go. So that's where you can put the, recharge my. I've I've been. I mean, and this is what's interesting about like I think you talk about that in Doomed quite a bit. Is that uh, he's not Mao. He's not like Stalin. Um, you have a whole section about sort of how it is. It is sort of, <clears throat> and I I, I picked this up because I don't think that you like necessarily say it explicitly, but you talk a little bit about how like the comparisons to Mao are not exactly where you should put Trump. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, very true. Uh, but I've been, I, what was interesting to me was I saw this, I think I saw this coming when Occupy Wall Street happened. I, I said to a friend of mine, when Occupy happened, I said, I think given that I'm hearing the rhetoric of these people say like, eat the rich, kill the rich, you know, stuff like that. I said, I think we're probably 15 years away from like fighting uh, in the streets and Trump seemed to not even accelerate it just to kind of like pull the cover off what I thought was already there. Uh, and you know, the accelerationism of sort of left leaning ideals, um, very weird. I mean, the destruction of historic history. Uh, I actually wanted to hit on this. You talk about iconoclasm, um, and the destruction. I mean, this is actually the segment that I'm talking about where you kind of show it back to like history yeah, I can't, the, the iconoclasm of America where we're pulling down statues. And in the book, you just say that, like, ah, this has happened before in, like, other places. And you don't really, like, give any uh, in-depth account of where. I thought maybe that'd be really interesting is hearing about where in history this, like, ripping down of history, this ripping down of statues has happened where it didn't result in, like, uh, Maoist struggle sessions and such. Like, where has this occurred uh, previous? Because you seem to kind of skip over the Mao portion of doing that and go right to like, yeah, it's happened in the UK and it's happened here and other places where they were just fine. Well, I could have written a great deal more about iconoclasm uh, if if space had permitted. It, it has a, a long history, not only in the history of Christianity, uh, iconoclasm, uh, for example, featured in the Reformation uh, where zealous Protestants tore down uh, images of, of the Virgin Mary, whitewashed uh, frescoes in, in churches. Uh, but, but it's not only a, a Christian phenomenon. In the Taiping uh, rebellion, there was iconoclasm. And Mao's Cultural Revolution is a famous recent example that you've already alluded to. If you read Frank de Curta's account of the Cultural Revolution, uh, the war on, on the various different aspects of uh, China's traditional culture extended to iconoclasm as well, of course, as to physical violence against people who seemed in some way to personify the old order. Uh, but it's it's actually a, a quite uh, recurrent feature in 
human history. The Russian Revolution had its iconoclastic phase. People tend to forget that. But in Richard Pipes's great history of the Bolshevik Revolution, he, he notes the massive destruction of, of churches and monasteries uh, that went on in the early phase of the revolution. So I, I don't have a great enthusiasm for the tearing down of statues. Uh, very often, historically, it's associated with, with violence against real people as well as stone effigies of people. I mean, as a poll, um, I always think about, you know, the fall of communism and how um, the first thing lots of former um, communist states did was tear down all the iconic uh, communist uh, statues and, you know, Stalins and all that sort of well, stuff. Well, America and Iraq, right? Like that yeah. we tore down, the first thing we did is we tore down the Saddam Hussein statue. It's, it's very common. It's interesting. And I think that sort of episode in, in the kind of post-communist sense, you know, I'd, I'd argue with my my Polish relatives, you know, is that, that if that's okay, isn't other stuff okay? And they would usually come back to me saying, well, the difference is, is we were, this is about oppression in our lifetime. So it's within the memory of everyone living. And that's why it's justifiable. Whereas tearing down statues from like 200, 300 years ago, not in anyone's lifetime. Just wondering what you think, you know, how that juxtaposes with, with the kind of more history, history-laden tearing down uh, that's going on, especially now. I think that's also the case in the UK. We've had a few st statues toppled there as well. Well, one can, of course, understand why uh, many uh, southern uh, cities have seen uh, statues of, of Confederate war heroes uh, torn down. Many of those statues were built quite some time after the Civil War, and it's generally argued that they were built to emphasize the persistence of, uh, of white supremacy in, in the southern states. But here's the point. Uh, it's not why you remove a statue, it's how you do it that matters. Obviously, uh, we wouldn't want there still to be statues of Adolf Hitler in uh, Berlin. Uh, the, the critical issue really is, is the, the process. I think if statues are, are torn down in an, an anarchic way uh, by a mob, uh, rather than removed by a democratic process, that's the dangerous thing. We, we, we don't have some kind of rule that says once a statue's up, it stays up. That would be absurd. Uh, but I think what was disturbing about uh, much that happened in 2020 on both sides of the Atlantic was the lawless way in which it was done, by all means, debate but, about whether a statue should remain. But don't, but, but Neil, don't tear it down uh, at, the, at the behest of a mob. It wouldn't be iconoclasm if it weren't by the the mob, right? Like that, that's that, why that, statue that kind removal. Of, yeah. yeah, but that's the point. If you don't like a statue, then your local uh, council uh, should take a decision. Uh, but tearing it down, uh, which, as you rightly say, is what iconoclasm really implies, uh, in in a violent way, is nearly always associated with violence against real people. And I think it's as a as a believer in private property rights. And democratic norms. I'm I'm in I'm in favour of doing these things in an orderly way, and uh, or not at all. It it does it is interesting because we do have curative mechanisms in democracy or in this republic, and it's interesting that uh, it, the iconoclasm is a sort of bypassing of it, and also how few people are needed in an iconoclastic movement to really go and destroy that history because like you know it, you don't need 
you don't need 50% of your city to go and take down the Columbus statue. You need 10 people. You know what I mean? Um, also, Neil, I just wanted to correct you. I heard you call it the Civil War. I think you meant the, the War of Northern Aggression. As we well, regularly sure if I'd the been around, <laughs> If I'd been around in the 19th century... <clears throat> Uh, I, I would, um, I would have, I would have recognised it as as uh, a war caused by the secession of the southern states, and I would have, I'm sure, sided with uh, the the union. But um, uh, but let's leave that debate for another podcast. <laughs> uh, good old boys podcast, yeah. which I'm sure you feature on regularly. I think Josh is, um, yeah, his his uh, inclination to be provocative. Um, I should have warned you about, but. Um, Moving back to Europe, though, because I'm quite interested in your views about um, the sort of upcoming winter of discontent, misery, I don't know what we're going to call it, um, in the post-sanctions environment. Obviously, doom is focused on all sorts of bad scenarios, but um, did you, what's your perspective? You've been an inflationista for a while. Um, did you expect the... Um, the scale of inflation to happen as quickly as it's happening. What's your, I mean, I know you're not in the business of making forecasts necessarily as a historian, but you are scenario planning in doom. And I was just interest, interested in what you, your view on what's happening in Europe now in this coming winter is, do we have any hope? Well, you called me an inflationista. I guess I plead guilty. I, did my doctoral dissertation on the German hyperinflation of the early 1920s. Uh, and so it's something that I've, I've spent a lot of my career thinking about. I was in common with a number of other people uh, premature in anticipating inflation in, when was it, around 2010, uh, 11, uh, because I think I didn't think through clearly enough the ways in which quantitative easing worked in the wake of the financial crisis. Uh, and, and one of the ways that it, it, it worked uh, was that the banks accumulated excess reserves almost in lockstep with the expansion of the Fed balance sheet. There really wasn't, therefore, an inflationary uh, consequence. So I got that wrong. Uh, but when the, the quite different circumstances of 2021 came along, then I think I called it correctly along with Larry Summers and uh, uh, and, and, and other uh, economists. And the reason that it was different uh, was that, apart from anything else, the banks didn't just accumulate ex excess reserves and you had very rapid uh, monetary expansion. Now, in 2020, that didn't matter because the velocity of circulation uh, fell off a cliff because of the lockdowns and the disruption to economic activity. But what the Biden administration and the Fed got wrong in 2021 was that then with the availability of effective vaccines, the economy was coming back to something resembling normality. And they unquestionably caused a, an overheating to happen on both the fiscal and the monetary side. It's insane that the Fed re retained an extremely uh, uh, easy money policy through uh, 2021. As, as early as February, Larry Summers and I were talking about the inflationary danger, and this turned out to be bang on target. Uh, this was one of the biggest monetary policy and fiscal policy errors of post-war history. And in some ways, it's a bigger error than the one that was made in the late 60s that Alan Meltzer writes about in his history of the Federal Reserve. In the early 70s, you got a geopolitical shock on top of the monetary 
uh, mistake. And we've had exactly the same experience this year where the war in Ukraine has played the same role as the 1973 uh, Arab-Israeli war. Uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has created a huge shock in food and energy markets. That is building on top of the existing inflationary impulse from fiscal and monetary policy. And here we are being persuaded or not persuaded by the Federal Reserve that magically inflation will come back down to 2% within a couple of years after they have barely moved rates up in, in a meaningful way, given that real rates are still deeply negative. So this, this I got right, and Paul Krugman got wrong. And that's good because Krugman was extremely unpleasant uh, in the debates of 2010 and 2011 and revealed himself to be a very unscrupulous debater, resorting to all kinds of ad hominem attacks and personal abuse. So it's great to see him eating crow the other day. That was one of the highlights of my year so far. But he has won one of the uh, Pulitzer Prize, Neil, so he's, he is more credible than you. Or not a Pulitzer, a Nobel Prize, right? Well, well, I'm, I'm sure he'll win a Nobel Prize and a Pulitzer, a Pulitzer Prize too. But prizes tell you nothing uh, these days, True. other than that your friends are on the committees. You, you call uh, you call Larry Summers that? What, I don't remember exactly what the phrase was, but the most Keynes-like, I think, economist since Keynes or something. I don't remember what the exactly your description of the book was. Because was he's very so worldly. I mean, Keynes was a yeah, Keynes was a very worldly person who loved. Uh, being in politics, being in government, and so does Larry, and uh, <laughs> and that's why I think his his instincts were were very good last year. Uh, he just has a better feel for a policy error when he sees one happening than someone like Krugman, who's never really been a serious uh, person in government. Um, I think we lost the last bit of that, um, but I was just going to ask: Do you think? Um, the inflation debate circa 2021 when we were in that great sort of is it transitory is it not transitory um do you think it was affected by sort of cancel culture and what is happening in terms of what some people perceive is happening in terms of free speech and the stifling of debate online because my perception is that i do think there was um, a bit of stigma associated with those calling um, calling the situation as potentially inflationary. I think Larry Summers was very much on the sharp end of a lot of abuse. Not abuse, maybe. I mean, I'm sure he can handle it. But um, I did perceive there was a kind of stigma, I think. With, he he with, was the first victim of cancel culture. I, I I mean, yeah. I mean, to some degree, I think I think he has. Do you, but do you think that do you perceive that has, as having influenced the the inflation debate and maybe had an inadvertent um, effect on people sort of um, stubbornly clinging to the idea that it is just transit transitory? And and is this like the real world repercussions of the culture wars as a, as a result? I mean, is this one of the first? I'm wittering now, but I, I think you get my, <laughs> my question. I think probably not, because cancel culture's nearly always about sex, gender, race. Uh, it's not about uh, CPI uh, uh, or PCE inflation measures. Uh, economics used to be, uh, and still to some extent is, a pretty hardball academic culture, but nobody played harder than Larry. 
Remember, Larry Summers opened a paper back in the day with the lines, quote, there are idiots, look around. That was the opening of the paper. <laughs> uh, now, to, to give Larry his, his due, he remains one of the thickest-skinned people I know who's almost magnificently oblivious to the impact his words are having on the people around him. And so I'm sure Larry didn't give a damn or paid the slightest bit of attention to all the snark that came his way back in February, mostly from his fellow Democrats who felt that he had somehow betrayed the cause. Uh, uh, and, and he's, uh, of course, enjoying the victory lap, having been entirely vindicated by the path of inflation. But I don't think this is really much to do with council culture, although you're right, Josh, I mean, Larry was one of the earliest victims. He was overthrown as president of Harvard for things that he did, said did he even... about the performance of women in, in uh, STEM subjects. That, that was where that all began. Did he even know he was president of Harvard? I get the sense that Larry Summers kind of just goes through his day. People like install him in positions and he just like continues being Larry Summers. Like, hey, now you work for Obama's administration. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> How about we dump a bunch of pollution on India? <laughs> I think one of, the, one of the things I admire about Larry is that he says uh, what he thinks uh, regardless of context and the position that he occupies and uh, I've seen him treat a former president of the United States like a dumb graduate student uh, in a <laughs> relatively public setting I thought that was that was great uh, so so no I mean I think cancel culture tends to go after very different uh, targets and you know it'll it'll never go after Larry on economics it'll go after him on some some politically incorrect thing he inadvertently said while trying to make an economic argument. And in the same way that the, the real uh, casualties of recent years in academia, say Joshua Katz at Princeton or Roland Fryer at Harvard, were, were not actually attacked for their work, uh, even although their work or things that they had said had upset people on the progressive left. They were attacked for other things or accused of harassment or of violating... Uh, uh, some social code or other, because that's the way cancel culture works. It doesn't really go after arguments. And I learned that slowly over the last 20 years, that, that what happens with cancel culture is that you've said something that they disagree with, but because they don't believe in argument, there's never an argument. Nobody ever sits down and says, well, Neil, your book on the British Empire said that there were benefits as well as costs of British imperialism. I want to disagree with you because the costs were these and they far exceeded the benefits. I've never had that debate with anybody on the left at any point, uh, but I have frequently been attacked uh, for having made the argument. Uh, and, and that's one of the frustrating things about cancel culture. It's, it's intellectually dishonest because it doesn't really engage. It just, it just basically tries to smear. That was what I objected to about Krugman's behavior in the last great inflation debate. He, he wasn't actually engaged in anything other than hurling abuse at the people who disagreed with him. I, I, I think you're I right. Mean, it's very disappointing yeah. when, when people um, resort to ad hominem. Um, although we only, I don't know how much more time you have for us because we, we've got about 10 minutes and I did want to get into your views on crypto. Um, and I think the inflation uh, pivot is a good one because um, I think 
at least as a as a journalist writing about economics and finance, I think sometimes the inflation angle has been um, maybe uh, th- there's been a certain sort of uh, gold buggerism stroke crypto perspective on on the whole inflation debate, and that means if you're a serious person, if you side with the inflation argument, people kind of brand you as, oh, you must be of that school. And then the conversation is closed down. So I think maybe it's more my perception that that there is, as a result, a trepidation uh, about calling out inflation if, you, if, you're an, if you're a sort of middle ground person who's supposed to be looking at these things objectively. But, um, but I'm just interested, like, how do you, um, you know, you told me once that um, you got into, or not got into, I don't think you're a Bitcoiner like Josh is, but um, you have found it an interesting development in the sphere of money. Are you going to be looking at the whole crypto journey from a historical perspective one day? What's your view at the moment, given the crash as well? Um, Have you changed your views? Are you still curious about it? Well, um, I wrote about uh, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum uh, and cryptocurrency generally in an updated version of The Ascent of Money that came out in 2018 with two new chapters. And uh, and what I argued then was that you had to understand the future trajectory in terms of adoption. Uh, and if Bitcoin was adopted uh, by more and more investors as an option on digital gold, which is the definition I like, then its price would likely go up. And the argument I made was that if uh, if every millionaire in the world put 0.2% of his or her wealth into Bitcoin, the price would be about $15,000. And if they upped that to 1%, then the price would be somewhere in the region of $70,000. So that was my kind of range uh, based on an adoption argument. It was never plausible to me that Bitcoin was an, an inflation hedge. And when anybody came to me with a crypto white paper saying, we have the solution to the problem of inflation, I would say, what problem? There hasn't been a problem with inflation for 20 years. In fact, the problem has been deflation. So why are you solving the, the problem of the 1970s? It's, it's, long, it's long gone. Uh, Gold isn't a particularly good hedge against inflation. So why would a kind of quasi-digital uh, gold uh, be one? So, so I think the inflation argument was mistaken. And when people say, ah, oh, inflation's gone up, but Bitcoin's gone down, end of discussion, they're, they're not understanding the, the point at all. Uh, I think the, the really critical story behind the crash was just leverage uh, and, and massive amounts of, of margin trading as uh, as the usual influx of speculators occurred, uh, as always occurs with any financial innovation. The, the real significance of the financial innovation is obvious. We, we clearly are not going to spend the rest of our lives paying for things online by typing in our credit card number on random websites. Uh, the system of payments is being transformed by technology. Uh, and I think there's no real doubt in my mind that uh, blockchain-based uh, systems are going to be a part of that revolution. Financial technology, broadly defined, will not stand still. But in any period of financial innovation, and this was true when bonds were invented, it was true when stocks were invented, you get these huge speculative inflows. And as soon as there is a speculative moment, then the incentive is to get as leveraged 
much as you possibly can uh, and get as much exposure as you can on the way up. That's what happened last year. And at some point, what happens in those situations is that monetary conditions change and then the most uh, leveraged players blow up. And that's what we've seen happening since finally the Fed woke up to its inflation situation and started to tighten monetary policy. That doesn't mean Bitcoin's going to zero, which is still, I think, Nouriel Roubini's position. Uh, it's going through one of its periodic uh, down moves, uh, which will doubtless be followed by an upswing at some future date. The last thing I'll say is that decentralized finance is in some ways a more interesting proposition uh, than Bitcoin itself. Uh, I think Bitcoin occupies this status of being an option on digital gold. It may or may not uh, hold that status. It may turn out that we really do need digital gold. But the bigger question is whether you can transition to a system of smart contracts in which a lot of transactions effectively get automated and don't require the pages and pages and pages of paperwork that a typical mortgage these days requires. That's an exciting prospect because ultimately, if you're telling me the financial system can't be improved, then I've got a bridge to sell you as well as uh, my own tokens. Uh, it obviously can be improved. The existing banking system can be improved. The system of doing payments abroad uh, can be improved. There's so much that can be improved by technology. It's unlikely in my mind that we somehow end up with all of decentralized finance, all of crypto disappearing any more than all the dot-com companies disappeared after 1999. I think what that's interesting. I want to... Of CBDCs, though, in the context of crypto, kind of emerging out of crypto, but then potentially moving towards a demonetization if we get kind of contract-based money. Do you see that um, as a risk or as a, or as, as a good thing, a positive thing or a bad thing um, that we should be wary of? Well, I'm instinctively skeptical about central bank digital currencies. The fact that the Chinese are really amongst the first to introduce one is in itself a red flag, pardon the pun. I'm not sure that we need a central bank digital currency. Uh, and I certainly don't like the idea of every American having an account at the Fed, uh, though I don't think that would be quite how it would work out here. The, the problem is just that the reason that the Chinese Communist Party wants a central bank digital currency is a, because Alibaba and Tencent were getting too powerful in payments, and B, surveillance is really much easier if you have your own central bank digital currency and every single transaction that every single citizen engages in can be logged and, and reviewed. We don't want that kind of a system uh, in the United States. What I think we want is for financial innovation to happen in the United States. And as decentralized finance evolves, uh, and it will continue to evolve, I think, very rapidly, it would be much better that it happened here. Do we want uh, on and off ramps that take you to fiat? Well, you need them because we'll still be paying our taxes in dollars, even if we have accumulated lots and lots of different uh, crypto tokens. Uh, should that on and off ramp be a state monopoly? Should there be a Fed stablecoin? God forbid. Uh, I, I'd far rather that there were uh, private sector solutions to the problem of how to have a good stable coin than that we created the state monopoly. So my sense is that let the Chinese do CCP surveillance money, and let's not try and copy that here. Let's allow the innovation to continue. And the big question, which I think hasn't been resolved, is what's the right regulatory framework for there to be innovation and decentralization? finance. Uh, is it 
possible to come up with something like Section 230 of CDA, which was so crucial in the commercial expansion of, of the internet, of, of Web 2, permissive, uh, and yet a framework. I think one needs a permissive framework, but it can't be exactly the same, because when you get into money, obviously the opportunities for fraud and, and scamming are enormous. So there clearly has to be some regulatory framework. We, we, I think, luckily have abandoned the idea that we're just going to close it all down and have Fed dollar. That, that idea had a little kind of run back in 2021, but I think that's now dead and buried. The question is still unresolved. What's the right framework to allow this innovation to continue without a great many people being fleeced? We're still working on that. And, you know, I'm going to have to read those uh, last chapters on the Ascent of Money because I have not read the updated version, but... I'm curious as to why Ethereum is what you chose to write about. And, and the reason I ask that is, I'm sure you've heard the term Bitcoin maximalism. Of course. Uh, I know some Bitcoin maxis. Okay, so, so Bitcoin maximalism is a word that was invented by Vitalik uh, many years ago after an argument he had with me. <laughs> so, oh, I'm, I did not know I'm, that. I'm, yeah, so this is, a, this is a word that describes me uh, in particular. Um, so you're talking to the first Bitcoin Maxi, uh, one of two, me and my, uh, at that time, podcast partner, Chris DeRose. So uh, I, I'm, I'm always curious as to what intrigues academics in particular about a system like Ethereum and if they really understand how it works or if it's just kind of like a curiosity uh, because kind of the world looks at it and and uh, and they just think like you know they kind of index their views and say like oh I couldn't know whether this is in fact kind of a BS or not. Well, I'm I'm probably structurally longer Bitcoin than Ether uh, if I just look at my portfolio. But if you think about where decentralized finance is going, much more is going to be built on top of Ethereum than on top of Bitcoin, and and in fact. Just the la the layers are already much greater on uh, on the Ethereum uh, platform than on than on Bitcoin. And Bitcoin, in a sense, is is it runs a risk of being an anachronism. That that's the thing that would concern me if I was a Bitcoin maximalist. That it may not, in fact, be the future of the future of money anymore. That'll be interesting. I think you'll look back on this and be like, "Oh, I was really wrong." <laughs> In the future, but I'm curious. I, I kind of want to get those on record. And and uh, um, on the Bitcoin Maxi side, I am. Um, oh, I'm a Maxi through and through for a lot of reasons. I think I would. I would uh, personally. I mean, I try to be objective, and I, I have made a, a few concessions on on my views on Bitcoin. But I would tend towards Bitcoin maximalism more than say decentralized finance. But I am. Like just to finishing things off because I know you probably are very busy with Nancy landing in Taiwan. Lots of things to uh, to digest. Um, with respect to the future of crypto, do you think now that we are in this energy scarcity world, does crypto still have a story? I mean, even with Ethereum, like um, promising proof of stake and some energy efficiency, there is no doubt in my mind that. You know, the, the system as a whole is far more energy intensive than, say, conventional. I mean, I don't know. We could have that debate with with Nick Carter, for example. But um, what? How can we justify all that energy being burnt 
for for crypto and speculation in the current environment. Do you think that is something that we will overcome in the longer run, or what do you think? Well, I think that particular critique of crypto and especially of Bitcoin has been somewhat over egged uh, in in the sense that. Uh, a lot of the electricity that actually goes into mining is not uh, it's not uh, being generated by by burning coal at this point. Uh, in any case, there are two issues. One is, is uh, can you uh, move to a less energy uh, intensive uh, crypto? And I think that's very likely. The second is can we move to a more efficient uh, system of, of generating electricity? And that is certainly the case. The problem that we have at the moment is a structural one. Uh, Europeans and North Americans, to some extent, thought that they could go to a renewables-based energy system well before the technology was ready to do that. Uh, And by reducing investment in particularly natural gas and completely cutting off investment in nuclear, we've ensured that there's an energy crisis of our own making. It's not like Putin was able to do this on his own. We had to make ourselves heavily reliant in Europe on natural on, on Russian gas and oil uh, for him to have that leverage. If I look ahead to uh, the lifetime of my children, I think most of the, the problems of generating clean energy are going to be solved technologically, including the battery storage problem. Uh, and solar is going to get much more efficient. It already has got much more efficient. And we'll rehabilitate nuclear energy because we'll have to. All of those things, I think, will will, will take care of themselves. And therefore, this won't be the, the decisive question for crypto. The decisive question for crypto is not, is it dirty? Does it generate uh, greenhouse gases? The decisive question is, does it have a use case that meaningfully improves uh, the different forms of activity that we associated with finance. With finance, can it store your wealth in a better way uh, than existing financial institutions? Is it better for transactions than existing financial institutions? All of those questions that will decide the fate of uh, of, of of Web three. Is it, is it really a solution to the problems that undoubtedly exist? One scenario which is plausible is that in the end. Uh, we don't need blockchain-based payment systems. We are going to be content with AI-based and quite centralized payment systems of the sort that already flourished in China and are spreading rapidly around the world. So fintech could go down the road of centralization. In other words, Web3 could be just like Web2 and end up being highly centralized despite its promise of decentralization. That wouldn't surprise me, though it wouldn't be a good thing. And it might be that blockchain just ends up being a, a, a technology we use for storing health records or uh, title deeds, rather than. I can't, using Neil. You and I, you and I have to do. We have to do like a one-hour show where we just talk about this because I, I, I think I could convince you. I, I, I really want to. It's like convince one substantial academic that they that they are completely wrong about that perspective. And it would be important to me. Well, remember, Josh, I mean, I'm actually the most constructive academic you will meet. I know that. That's why I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I don't ask the... Ken Rogoff. <laughs> ask Neil Ferguson. No, no but the, the economists have set their faces largely against this. Uh, what I'm doing, because I know that you're a true believer, is expressing some of the, the doubts that I think any rational person must have about the future of finance. Nobody knows. 
Financial oh, evolution is an extremely difficult thing to predict. And uh, if you just ask the question, what, what does quantum computing do uh, to Bitcoin? The answer is uh, nothing good. So you, you, you've got to recognize that there are risks to a technology that was devised as long ago as 2008. And I would be doing a disservice to your listeners if I didn't express my own doubts. As I said, I'm structurally long Bitcoin. But uh, I, I, I have to ask myself the question, is that where I want to stay, knowing what I know now uh, and so the thinking reason... about the way financial evolution could go? So I'm I'm not that far from where you are. My perspective, though, would be something like uh, either Bitcoin works or nothing works, and uh, and 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 things like storing health records, storing any of this stuff, like this is the, my critique of Ethereum could be boiled down in to one simple sentence, which is that blockchains don't do that, and so that's the thing. Like there are things that blockchains do not do. And, uh, and I, so I think it'd be very interesting to like have a discussion about why I think that, what blockchains actually do, and uh, why it's either Bitcoin or bust. I, I, I would love to have that as, uh, as, as a topic one day, if you're ever willing to do that. That would be something I would, and I'll be very respectful. We would love to have you back. Um, and uh, the whole p p purpose of this podcast really is to have two different perspectives because, um, you know, that's the blind spot. That's the idea. Um, the wrong one and the right one. And we don't just always agree. So I'm yeah. bad cop, good cop. Don't be so hard on yourself. You know. <laughs> but final question, given it is the blind spot podcast, what is the big blind spot? Perhaps within the, you know, uh, global elite at the moment, what would you say is the biggest blind spot? Well, we're rerunning the Cold War. Uh, and yet we seem intent on on including its most dangerous episode. Uh, although I don't think the Cuban Missile Crisis is replaying right now in Taiwan, I think it could relatively soon. And the blind spot that I think most people have is in believing that the Cold War was bound to have a happy ending. Actually, at the height of the crisis, a uh, Soviet submarine commander gave the order to fire a nuclear-tipped torpedo at U.S. naval vessels that were dropping depth charges. And the only reason that, that that didn't happen was that a superior officer happened to be on board the submarine and countermanded the, the submarine commander's uh, order. We shouldn't run that experiment again because there is just no guarantee that it turns out equally well. So I think the blind spot that most people have is that they don't recognize that the probability of nuclear war is high and, and has risen, and it rises the more powers acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, this has become a little bit more fashionable to say because uh, Putin reminded us that he has the largest stock of nuclear warheads in the world and can't therefore lose the war in Ukraine because even if his army starts to unravel in the face of a Ukrainian counteroffensive next week, he can still threaten to nuke uh, Lviv and that's the end of the, the war. So I think I, that's still the blind spot. We have kind of forgotten the lessons of, of the Cold War. And I think it shows in the way that the Biden administration has thought about this issue, which is that it seems completely to have forgotten the elements of deterrence. It looks like the people in power in Washington actually haven't read the relevant literature 
uh, on on nuclear strategy, and th that's a pretty big blind spot to have. Right. What would the what would the equivalent Cuban crisis be like? Uh, the El Salvadoran missile crisis, or like what? Where? What would it look like in the no? It's the age? Taiwan semiconductor crisis. The Taiwan semiconductor crisis is that the Chinese launch a successful invasion of Taiwan and take control of TSMC, which gives them control of the key produ producer of high-end semiconductors in the world. And the U.S. tries to stop that, and the Chinese sink the aircraft carriers, and then it's nuclear or bust. I mean, in that, in that scenario, either the US uses nuclear weapons or it cedes global supremacy to China. That could happen at some point in the next, I would say, two or three years with, with reasonably high probability. The only thing that's holding the Chinese back is their own risk aversion because invasions of islands are difficult. Uh, but their opportunity is there because the US has no credible strategy to defend Taiwan. And that's what's, as I said at the beginning of the discussion, that's what's odd about the Pelosi visit and all that the Biden administration says about Taiwan. We're bluffing. We are bluffing. And that's and a it's very known. easy thing to do. Yeah, they must know that. Well, on that sad note, um, thank you so much for your time today. And um, hopefully you will come back <laughs> and have that one-to-one <laughs> -one with Joshua at some other point. But it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed, Isabella. And thank great. you, Josh. I'm a doubt. I'm a doubt maximalist. And if you don't have a lot of doubt in your mind, then you're overconfident and then you'll cause World War Three or just yeah. <laughs> Well, Neil, I you know I've I've read a lot of your books and uh, Doom itself, uh, the one that, that you have just released is uh, you know, for me it took a little while. It it starts off a little slowly as you go through the history of pandemics. But there's so much in every one of your books to discuss. It would just be a pleasure at some point to uh, take any one of them and just kind of go through things. Uh, so we had another 10 hours that we were planning on, but I guess you have to leave early, you know? So we'll let you go. <laughs> <laughs> I got a... I got some family stuff to attend. Yeah, no, Jeff, Jeff, unfortunately, is from the Joe Rogan School of Three Hour Podcasts, whereas I'm going to. <laughs> I, yeah. I do have a hit. I do. I do go th as I go through books. I buy every book they mention. So I bought like Dan the Daniel Defoe, like Journal of uh, Everything, everything else. So I, I have like oh, well, all if of you those. Do that if you do that with yeah with my books, you're going to end up with needing a new house for all the extra books. I, I that's like actually what I do, books. Neil. I I'm on the uh, Neil Ferguson uh, house purchasing tour. Every time I go through one of your books, I get another <laughs> two three hundred books, and uh, and I have I've had to buy three or four new bigger and bigger houses for this reason. So uh, thank you very much. Strategy. I think yeah. I prefer your real estate strategy to your Bitcoin strategy. I'm a real estate <laughs> maximalist. You and the Chinese. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you very much. Again. All right. Uh, I'm going to end the broadcast now, but there we go.